the library with your host, Cheyenne and Sam. Hey friends, welcome back to Life in the Library. Today we're going to talk about library history. Cheyenne, are you ready to learn about ancient libraries and how modern libraries came to be? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> the world's oldest known library is the Library of Ashurbanipal. Oh, goodness. <laughs> it was founded in the 7th century BC for the royal contemplation of the Assyrian ruler. Oh, that's kind of cool. This library was located in Nineveh, which is now modern-day Iraq. The library contained 30,000 cuneiform tablets, and they were organized by subject matter. Jeez. You know what cuneiform means? No! <laughs> well, it means wedge shape, and it is one of the oldest forms of writing. So it's like a piece, like a slab it's of It's like wood? a tablet. But like of wood. Have you ever seen the knight at the museum? Yeah. The like rock? Yeah. The, like the stone plate? Like yeah. in the Flintstones? Yeah. But it's wood. It's not wood. Oh, I thought you said it was wood. No. Wedge shape. Um. Okay. Continuing. Flintstone to- stone tablet. Got it. <laughs> yeah. This library housed mainly documents, religious incantations, and scholarly text. There were also several works of literature, including the 4,000-year-old Epic of Gilgamesh. What the heck is that? <laughs> well, the Epic of Gilgamesh is a poem from ancient Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, friends. <laughs> Anyways, it is the second oldest text, while the pyramid texts are the oldest. Oh, really? That's cool. So this poem is important because it creates a parallel to the Bible and the society of Mesopotamia nearly 4,000 years ago. Dang. Through his struggle, Gilgamesh. (laughs) (laughs) That name is throwing me off. Gilgamesh. (laughs) Through his struggle to find the meaning in life, Gilgamesh defied death and in doing so became the first epic hero in world literature. Okay, hang on. Wait. (laughs) How did he defy death? I didn't get that far. What is that? Like, (laughs) I need to know the backstory. Like, what happened? I was going to read this poem to you, except for it's 12 tablets long. Oh, jeez. Okay, yeah. You can look up the poem yourself. We'll link it. That's a long poem. Poems not normal. They didn't know what poem meant back then. Okay, I was like, wait. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking like haiku, you know? (laughs) So most of the contents of the Library of Ashurbanipal was looted from Babylonia or other conquered territories, but they're now kept on display in the British Museum in London. Oh, cool. So, I thought this was kind of funny when I was doing my research. Although most of the items were acquired through plunder, Asher Bannerpal was worried of theft. What? <laughs> so, he stole everything, but he right. was worried it was going like, to get stolen. He's like, hang on, I'm a thief. I know, this how, I know how this works. <laughs> so, he was so worried that he left an inscription on one of the texts that says, if anyone steals, the gods will cast him down and erase his name, his seed, in the land. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. So, that was the end of that library. I bet. (laughs) The next library popped up in Egypt following the death of Alexander the Great. Oh, cool. So, when he died, uh, his control fell to his former general, Ptolemy, I'm going to assume is the name. He sought to establish a learning center in the city, and the result of that was the Library of Alexandria, created in 323 B.C. Wow. And if anyone doesn't know, B.C. is before Christ. Yeah, so like a long time ago. (laughs) So the life of the Library of Alexandria was cut short in 48 B.C. because it was burned down by Julius Caesar um, when he set fire to it during a battle. Okay, so he had some anger issues. (laughs) (laughs) But in 
its peak, the library may may have held over 500,000 papyrus scrolls. I'm sorry, a what? Papyrus? It's um, a Like a paper. papaya seed? No, that's a fruit. Yeah. Papyrus is a old type of paper. Oh, okay. Is this still around today? I think so. Let's get some papyrus paper. Papyrus. Pap- oh. <laughs> Although that these libraries have sadly come to their end, there are still some ancient libraries that are standing today. The first one is the Villa of Papyri, if I say that correctly. It is one of the only locations whose collection has survived to the present day. And in 79 AD, which is after death, right? Yes. Uh, maybe? <laughs> yes. In 79 AD, when Mount Vesuvius erupted, the library was buried and preserved under a 90-foot layer of volcanic material. Wow. Which is... Kind That's of shocking, because I guess fire and paper. Right. But I guess it was just... It, like, fossilized it? Pretty much. That's so weird. And the collection wasn't rediscovered until the 18th century, and it's located in what is now northern... I'm sorry, southern Italy. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, still there. Mm-hmm. And the next still-standing ancient library is the Library of Celsus. Now, this library is not that big, but it has something pretty cool. Ooh. Okay. So, this library was a memorial for Julius Celsus Pulmanius, which I probably said that wrong also. <laughs> the library was built by his son in the town of Ephesus, which is now modern-day Turkey. Oh, cool. And although the library was small, containing only about 12,000 scrolls, it is best known for Celsus, who was buried inside in an ornamental sarcophagus. I'm sorry, what? He built himself <laughs> a I mean, it was a, it was a memorial for his dad, so his dad's buried in it. That's freaking cool. He was like, <laughs> my dad said, I'm going to put him in his library forever. Exactly. <laughs> You're just going to rest here. <laughs> well. Okay, I have new standards for my burial now. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh I want to be buried in my library nook. <laughs> it's not big enough. <laughs> <laughs> Grow. Also, fun fact, Shari and I decided to both build reading nooks in our house at the exact same time without speaking to each yeah, other. Yeah, we didn't speak to each other for like a week, and... I had something tragic happen in my life, so Sam came over, and I was tearing down the paneling in my closet, and she was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm building a library nook, and she's like, I hate you. And I was like, what? Why? And she goes, I'm building a library nook, too. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Well, Cheyenne, do you want to tell us about the secret libraries in Europe before we travel back to the U.S.? Okay, yeah, totally. So I'm super weird, and when Sam and I were talking about doing an episode on the history of libraries, the literal only thing I could think about was if there were any secret historic libraries or, like, spooky-esque library societies. So I was trying to find any dark history that was tied to libraries in general, and it honestly sent me down this fun little rabbit hole of two hidden religious libraries, and those are the libraries that I'm going to be talking about today. The first one is the Library Cave, or more commonly known as Cave 17, and it was one of 500 and a thousand Buddha grottos, which were dug into a lowest cliff on the edge of the Gabai Desert in the China province. These caves were excavated and maintained by Buddhist monks beginning in 366 CE, which Sam said is common era. The common era. So there was an unofficial guardian of the caves, and his name was, which by the way, Siri is going to speak it, so I don't butcher <laughs> it. His name was that. That part. For all intents and purposes, we're going to call him Wang. So Wang was the unofficial guardian of the caves, and he was just chilling at work one day and discovered this hidden door that led to a chamber filled with manuscripts dating back from the 4th 
to the 11th century. Dude, could you, like, imagine just doing your job and then, boom, you come across the secret door (laughs) that you probably shouldn't open. And you're just like, eh, yeah, I'm going to open this anyway. Because that's pretty much what he did. He was just like. I don't blame him. (laughs) Right? He was chilling. And he was walking around. And he was like, what's this? And it probably had, like, some Buddhist language written on it. Like, do not open. And he's like, I'm going to open this. Hey, curiosity killed the cat, man. Literally. (laughs) So, these weren't just meaningless documents. These were things like super important documents filled with scriptures, politics, things about the economy, philosophy, military affairs, and art. Written in at least 20 different languages. And at least one of the manuscripts, which I thought was really cool, was said to have been written in Hebrew. According to the New Yorker, by 1910, when the Chinese government ordered the remaining documents to be transferred to Beijing, only about a fifth of the original hoard of documents remained. Hmm. The thing I find, like, super interesting about all this is that to this day, no one knows why the cave door was sealed or hidden. Like, there, right? there was no manuscript or anything in there that stated why these documents were so important. That they were sealed. Yeah. Huh. So when asked, there was this guy named Stain, and when he was asked why he thought the door was, like, sealed, Mm -hmm. he suspected that it was a way of storing manuscripts that they no longer needed to use, but that were too important to throw away. And they actually had a librarian to maintain the manuscripts in the cave. So, super cool. Imagine going on Indeed today and seeing a job description stating, seeking librarians to maintain and guard secret manuscripts in a hidden cave. (laughs) (laughs) I would apply for that. Literally, I would apply, and I would definitely only apply to get to the interview portion and just ask a bunch of questions. That would just be me. I was like, I'm going to apply to this so I can talk to, like, the manager (laughs) and try to figure out why these things are sealed. So that's the first library. Super cool. I thought it was super crazy that they just have, like, these librarian monks chilling in these caves, like, guarding <laughs> old documents. Um, the second one, um, which I also think is pretty cool, but a little bit more controversial, I would say, is the Vatican Apostolic Archives is aimed at preserving and enhancing the deeds and documents related to the government of the Universal Church. It's made up of... 53 miles of Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> 53 miles of underground shelves and vaults. Oh my god, that's amazing. Hold on. <laughs> we need to discuss this really quick. Yeah. 53 miles of 53. shelves yeah, no. and vaults. Um yeah. <clears throat> yeah, 53 miles of underground shelves and vaults. Underground. Let's go. <laughs> Stop what we're doing. Pause the podcast. <laughs> we're going go to the Vatican. <laughs> okay, so Okay, you say that, but it's actually, like, super complicated. You can't just go and see it. Oh, I'm aware. The Vatican is the Vatican. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, 53 miles of underground shelves and vaults. Vaults. And one of the only reasons it was open to, quote, qualified researchers was because Pope Francis was trying to get rid of any implications that there was something shady in them. Because it's the Vatican. (laughs) So I'm personally still skeptical. What would you have to be to go in there? What kind of researcher? We're getting there. But it's qualified researchers. All right, we're qualified. Let's go. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. So what researchers did find in them, though, were documents that dealt with Prius V. 
known as the actual Pope of World War II. Oh? Oh. Do you have more information on this person? Uh-huh. Okay. So that's insane, right? So the Pope of World War II. It literally gave insight into dealings with Nazi Germany. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> His, like, manuscripts gave insight into Nazi Germany. Okay. Fun fact. My great-grandma was in World War II. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. She's a, she was a Marine and a mechanic. Aw. Yeah. Continue. <laughs> Did she know the World War II Pope? I hope not. <laughs> I really hope not. Because... He had some secrets, man. I bet he did. I'm pretty sure all popes do. <laughs> oh <my God>. Sorry. <laughs> to this day, it's still not easy to access the archives. I wonder why. Anyone who wants to gain access to them has to go through an extensive vetting process. On top of that, once they get into the archives, if they do, there's no guarantee that they will even find what they're looking for in the first place. I mean, 53 miles. Right. So in 2005... Archive Perfect, which Perfect is a name that they use in place of, like, custodian or librarian. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so, Archive Perfect Sergio attempted, or, I'm sorry, he admitted that it's not necessarily a matter of them keeping secrets, but just of you being able to go in there and knowing what's there and where the heck to find it. So, like, if we got in there, it wouldn't really matter because we wouldn't know what the heck to look for. Right. That's why you just grab everything and run. <laughs> Grab 53 miles worth of manuscripts. Heck yeah. And vaults. Okay. I want to see it happen. <laughs> so. You just grab some, lock yourself in a vault when the coast is clear, go back out, <laughs> grab some more. I'm going to get put on a ban list. <laughs> oh my gosh. So it's said that there are documents that span about 12 centuries. Jeez. There's 12 centuries of documents. And it says that they're from the 8th century to the 20th century. And some of which, by the way, are kept in a two-story underground vault that they believe the documents in these vaults are so important that some of them are stored in flat, acid-free cases with climate and humidity-controlled rooms. What is that important that's not like the Declaration of Independence? That has to be stored in a two-story underground chamber that's (laughs) humidity-controlled. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's only available to, quote-unquote, qualified researchers. Sus. Super sus. Ron, do you do that again? Mm-hmm. There's actually a group of important documents called the 81 parchments, mm. which are sealed with gold of course. and stored in a dedicated air-conditioned sector with other extremely important items that are not named. I don't even care what's in these vaults anymore. I just want to see these high-tech, air-conditioned, climate-controlled, gold-sealed, vaults, shelves. I don't know. Those shelves are probably, like, made of, I don't know, something fancy. Something at this point. Like, (laughs) they're literally spending all these resources to keep these documents, like, peak. And for what? what? What is in there? Like, Sergio says himself that it's not a matter of, like, what is in there. It's a matter of... You wouldn't know what you were looking for. It's not categorized because they don't know the Dewey Decimal System. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It's probably categorized to them. I didn't get that far. Anyway, that's freaking nuts. (laughs) I hope that someday someone finds something that I did so important that they write it and store it in a two-story underground bunker that has climate and humidity control. (laughs) And they seal it with an emerald seal. Ooh, an emerald. Oh. 
Because that's actually my favorite seals. color. Okay. Yeah. I, you were... <laughs> I was like, oh, like oh, an emerald gem. <laughs> they just place an emerald gem on top of it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, there are so many scholars that have done hours of reading and research about this place that I personally would love to visit myself and just snoop around and see if I could find <laughs> anything juicy. Because, like, there has to be something juicy in there, right? It's I like mean, hush hush. If there's documents with Nazis. <laughs> Nazi Germany. What else is in, in World there? War II <laughs> from the Pope's perspective? Okay, but you said that there was stuff from the 8th century? Yeah. That is a century after my first ancient library. Mm-hmm. That's insane. <laughs> so, anyway, there's an entire website dedicated to this library that I'll link in the description of the podcast episode for anyone that wants to go down the rabbit hole that I went down <laughs> because there's so much stuff. Like, you can go on their website and look into, like, their little study rooms that they have for researchers to, like, read their books and stuff. Because you can't take them out of the library. You Wait, ha- so you can go in the library? So you can go in certain parts if you're a qualified researcher. But you oh. have to go through a vetting process. And they said that even if you went, like, okay, so even if I went and I wanted to see the manuscripts from the Pope of World War II, I don't, I wouldn't know where to find them. Yeah, and they're also, they only let you in certain parts. So, like, what's in the parts? So, like, first of all, you have this long process to get in here, and then you're <laughs> only allowed to go in certain parts. There is some sketchy sh- stuff. There's got to be something down there. In the parts that you can't go in. Like, what if they have secrets to what Nazi Germany was doing? Like, what if, what if, what if the documents in this two-story underground chamber sealed with gold. It sounds kind of culty to me. Would change our history as we know it. There could be. There could be. Like, this Pope was on the front lines. What if he knew something that we don't know? What if he was, like, working with the Nazis? I guess we'll never know because we're not qualified researchers. Yeah, I'm nowhere near qualified. (laughs) Even if our podcast gets super famous. They'll never let us down there. No. You'll tell all of our secrets. Except this library. Literally. This life in the library. So I'll just link the website in the description because you can, like, it's insane. You have to make sure, though, that you click at the top of the website to change it into your language because <laughs> it's written. I don't even know what language it's written in, but it's written in not my language. <laughs> anyway, Sam, do you want to take us back to America? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, hopping back on over to the U.S. and <laughs> Not spooky, secretive ish stuff (laughs) and jumping a little forward in history we're going to start in the 1700s (laughs) a little forward in history that's like (laughs) that's still pretty far in history (laughs) so in the 1700s private book clubs among wealthy men turned into subscription libraries so these libraries were funded by membership fees or donations okay hang on wait so private book clubs like by men only men only men? men I thought women started book clubs. This was the 1700s. Oh, okay. I see. I see. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, hang on. Wait, women are definitely more interested in book clubs. Yeah, these days. Just wait. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) So these private book clubs turned into these subscription libraries, which these libraries were funded by membership fees or donations and only accessible by paying members. So the first one of these libraries was formed in Philadelphia under the direction of Benjamin Franklin. Oh, no kidding. (laughs) This library would later... Um, coming to be known as the library company is that still around i have no idea oh okay (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, today, less than 20 of these subscription libraries exist in the U.S., and they mainly only focus on special collections or rare materials. Oh, cool. So, in pre-Revolutionary War America, if you were not wealthy or a member of the clergy, books were hard to come by. What the heck is the clergy? We don't know? (laughs) Okay. I'm assuming it's the book club. No. Give me the iPad. <laughs> Stop asking. Hold, please. I don't know. I think clergy is like a, the church, like a member of the church. Oh, okay. So we're back to the church. <laughs> Hang on, guys. She's just going to look it up really quick. Oh, <clears throat> asking. A body of all people ordained for religious duties, especially oh, wow. in the Christian church. Anyways, once again. I was right. <laughs> back to the church we go. <laughs> There's no separation of church and state. Oh. Okay. Okay. So, in pre-Revolutionary War America, if you are not wealthy or a member of the clergy, which is part of the church, (laughs) books were hard to come by. But in July of 1731, that changed when Benjamin Franklin helped expand the membership library to the American colonies. Go, Benji! (laughs) (laughs) Franklin worked with the members who are part of a club called Junto, oh, which is a club of thinkers. Who the freak comes up with these names? I have no idea. <laughs> Using the money from the Junto, Junto members <laughs> and a 40-shilling investment oh. from each of the library's first 50 members, and I meant to look up what a shilling was in today's, like, Oh, like our money? money yeah. I forgot. We'll do it later. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the library company formed its first collection of books from Ben Franklin himself and the Junto members. So they, it's like you and I gathering all of our books together and being like, here's our first library. Oh, my God. So cute. You know the, like, difference in books there would be in that library? <laughs> They'd be, like, half murder mystery and half fantasy. Pretty much. And that'd be it. And, like, maybe a couple of Christian books thrown <laughs> in. So by 1732, the first book order was sent to London. Wow. Sorry, I'm reading off a notebook, so <laughs> listen to my page turner. <laughs> library members, and this is library with a capital L. So, like, the people who donated. Oh! Not, like, library, like, library Library members. members. They could access the book as they pleased. Oh, what? Because they were paying. Oh, that makes so sense. So their donations, their membership, they could come, take a book. woo Well, if you were not a member... You had to provide collateral. I'm sorry. For your books. <laughs> Could you like trade in a cow? <laughs> they didn't say what had to be provided as collateral. But you had to provide collateral, which I'm assuming is going to become a library card and being held accountable. Right. But at the time it was you had to put some collateral up. Like a book. cow. <laughs> Here's my cow. I want to read this book. <laughs> So, not only did Franklin play a role in subscription libraries, but he also played a role in the, in the development of the first lending library. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, in 1970, Franklin donated a collection of books to a town in Massachusetts that named itself after him. <laughs> now, you want to hear something funny? <laughs> They're just like, he donated us a lot of books. We're going to well, name our donate, whole town. He didn't donate books yet. Oh, okay. So, the town named itself, I'm assuming Franklin, Massachusetts. And then the town asked him to donate a bell. Oh, my gosh. But Franklin said that sense was more important than sound and donated them the books. Oh, that's cute. 
Yeah, I just want to have the power one day to be like, you want a bell? Too bad. Here's a bunch of books. (laughs) Get smart. (laughs) So the residents voted that the books would be freely available for the town members, creating the the nation's first public library. Oh, wow. In Massachusetts. So cute. Afterwards, public libraries began began spreading in America after the Civil War. These lending libraries or public libraries were board-governed and tax-funded instead of by subscription or membership or donation. Like today. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) The first... Ow. Oh, she hit her elbow, you guys. (laughs) The first totally tax-supported library was established in Peterborough, New Hampshire in 1833. Oh, wow. And the first large public library was the Boston Public Library, which was founded in 1848, but didn't open its doors until 1854. Um, So a fun fact was... It wasn't until after the 1900s when women would dominate the, the operational work in libraries. Yeah, I wonder why that is. Like, that's because women weren't allowed. Women were supposed to be in the kitchen and housewives back then. <sighs> yeah, but like, it's just books. Oh, well, I guess I would say, yeah, I guess I would say, like, they're going to get ideas. <coughs> so, yeah. God forbid. <laughs> so, it wouldn't be after the 1900s, and it would be even longer until women would have full admin power and responsibility wow that sucks so there's this thing called ala it is the american library association this would be the first and largest library professional organization in the world the mission of the ala is to enable librarians to do their present work more easily and at less expense Mm. another fun fact is despite the rapid growth of women in the profession, the ALA would not elect its first woman president until 1911. Oh, that's lame. Mm-hmm. And her name was Teresa Elmdorf. Oh, she's a cute last name. <laughs> and my final fun fact of... Let me make sure. Andrew Carnegie. You know who that is? No. So he is the leader in Steel. Or was the leader in Steel. Oh, oh, oh okay. So he worked on creating a lot of, like, the wooden railroad bridges. Yeah. Making them steel. Yeah. Okay. So Andrew Carnegie's funding had built about half of the 3,500 libraries standing at that time. Oh, that's so cool. Right? He did a lot for libraries. like And railroads. <laughs> that too. <laughs> so his funding earned him the name or the nickname Patron Saint of the Libraries. Aw, what a saint. <laughs> And with that, that is our ancient, secret, and U.S. history of the libraries. <laughs> Jeez, we covered a lot. Definitely. You guys. Oh, my God. Sam, do you want to tell them? How- you got me into Dungeon and Dragons. Sam found me a group of people to play Dungeon and Dragons with. I don't want to tell them about that. Why? <laughs> I'm so excited. I know you are. I'm so excited. Okay, so listen. <laughs> Nerd guy. Backstory. I've wanted to play Dungeons and Dragons for years, but growing up in like super Southern Pentecostal, I was told that Dungeons and Dragons is the devil, right? So, and I can back that up by I am a Stranger Things fan. He, no, that's an understatement. She's a Stranger Things fanatic, and I bought the Hellfire from Case, and <laughs> Cheyenne was like, "That's satanic." And literally tonight, when we were eating dinner before this podcast. <laughs> She was talking about Dungeons and Dragons because a couple of my coworkers were playing, mm-hmm. and she was like, "Oh my gosh!" And I was like, <laughs> "Hey guys, Cheyenne wants to join your next campaign or whatever it's called because I'm not a nerd." 
Shout out to BDU employees. <laughs> <laughs> and Shrine's like, oh my gosh, I love Dungeons and Dragons. All these people I know want to play. And I had to stop and look at her. And be like, like excuse me? <laughs> they played Dungeons and Dragons and Stranger Things. And the Hellfire Club was literally a bunch of kids that play Dungeons and Dragons in a basement. Yeah, but also, like I was telling Sam earlier, also and depends. you called my phone case <laughs> satanic. I mean, it has a devil face on it. Also, it depends on how you play. <laughs> it depends on how you play Dungeons and Dragons. Like, some people make it super spooky and make it to where, like, the dungeon master tells you to do, like, satanic cults and stuff in the games. But other pe- people play it like me me i want to play like this (laughs) other people play it super nice and like fantasy where like they just have elven princesses that are like ba warriors that run around killing like vampires and stuff it took me a minute to process what the heck you're saying when you said ba warrior cheyenne does not cuss (laughs) yeah so i'm like what the heck is a ba warrior because i'm thinking this is nerd lingo (laughs) and i'm just over here she means badass See, this is why I say that Sam and I are so different, right? Because I'm the nerdy little, like, I don't even know what I am. A freaking mixed cauldron full of every style, genre, whatever you can throw at. Oh my gosh, I got called an odd cookie the other day. By who? One of the guys at work. Well, she's going to listen to this podcast. For what? For what? What'd you do? I was telling him, I was like, look at this stack of books in my card that I have to read for this podcast. (laughs) Listen, we both have, like, ten books in our house right now, you guys. And yeah. we have to get them done. Like, we only give ourselves, like, a week and a half to read a book. We're determined. Yeah, and they're, like, not little books. <laughs> we really challenge ourselves here. Anyway. But he was, like, he was one of those people, you the library, you reading. Ugh, lame. <laughs> and he called me an odd cookie. He was, like, you're so odd. Like, you you read. You <laughs> have this library podcast. Sorry, I'm educated. You, <laughs> you make laundry detergent you make salsa like you're just this odd combination and i'm like i mean you're not wrong but her hair is split dyed black and red right now you guys like so she doesn't give off the woo woo hippie vibes that like her life does <laughs> she's like this little alternative looking grunge chick who's like it's the alternative thank you who's <laughs> like let me make laundry detergent and care about the plastic that's in the world <laughs> Well, <laughs> since we brought this up, I just want to say that I am now revamping not only my life, but my social media, and it's going to be called the Outlawed Homestead. Aw, so cute. But the backstory behind that is because I used to have a shop on Etsy called, um, I don't even remember anymore. Are you talking about the one with your Scooby-Doo stuff? Yes. Outlaw Creations. No. Oh. Mystery Crafts, Inc. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I got terminated from Etsy. Yeah, because people thought she was stealing stuff, but she wasn't. Exactly. So I came back as Outlawed Creations. Welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) I do not have Instagram, so I guess I once this gets taken off, I'll have to make one. (laughs) You'll have to help me come up with a catchy handle. I know. I need to change mine to the Outlawed Homestead because I want to start posting stuff. Yeah, so cute. I know. I love it. It, it also fits. goes with your Southern Housewife resume, too. It does. So cute. So cute. Which, if you heard our first episode, <laughs> she goes into more detail about that. Yes. I'm working on it every day. Anyway, we always love talking to you guys and letting you in on our library history and random stuff that happens in our life. Yeah, our crazy lives. We walk in to do a podcast, and there's a group of men sitting at a table playing D&D. And 
And we're Ian Yamatas. Yeah. Like standing up at this little L-shaped desk in our <laughs> little podcast room. Just, well, I don't even know why we stood and ate. We have chairs we right here. We were hungry. We had to scarf down the food. Listen. For these people. <sighs> anyway, bye guys. <laughs> See you next time. Thank Daddy and Limitless for partnering with us on this podcast. Until next time. Bye.